Thanks, Rick. And uh, good evening, guys. It's uh, great to be with you. Um, just in the break, um, I met a, a special couple called Ali and Kate who um, lead the Rock Church down in southeast Nottingham. And uh, they're with us tonight. They're just down here. I wonder if we could just welcome them. They're friends in the kingdom of God. Doing great things for God. And uh, we stand with you and we pray blessing over your life. Well, uh, tonight, as uh, Rick said, it's off meeting. Uh, we are in our Exodus series, uh, which if you're new here, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and we've been looking through it uh, since January, actually. And um, for those of you who've been around, you've been enjoying the series? Yeah. Yes, that's good. At least half the room been enjoying the series. That's good. It's better than the morning. Well, it's the, uh, it's the penultimate uh, message tonight. And uh, I, let, let's begin by praying. Let's look to God. Father, we, we just thank you uh, for the truth and the authority and the sovereignty of your words. Uh, we thank you that it does us good. We thank you that it reads us. We thank you that you speak to us through it. We pray, come and do us good tonight, we ask, as we look into it, as we exalt Jesus, and as we glorify your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a fascinating time to be a Christian uh, in the UK at the moment. The statistics show that the evangelical, that's Bible-believing church uh, in our nation uh, is growing, uh, and there seems to be an increased sense of togetherness and friendship through things like Thy Kingdom Come that you, you might have heard about. Um, uh, the church actually is, is the biggest, uh, the second biggest provider of uh, services that help people, if you can put it like that, um, after social services themselves. Um, and even the, the atheism of, of millennials, so that's those born roughly in the 1980s or so, seems to be giving way to, um, like, a, a, I suppose, a spiritual intrigue or a, a desire for more of what sociologists call uh, Generation Z uh, or the I generation. That is those who are born uh, in the 90s and the noughties. So there's plenty to be encouraged by. And yet I'm sure we could all articulate that there are some things in our nation where um, well, it just seems to be a bit of a mess, doesn't it? I suppose um, uh, Brexit and our attempts to try and kind of sort that out would, uh, would come to mind quickly. Um, but, but there's other well-articulated crises in uh, things like social care, uh, in the level of family breakdown, in, in government funding of, of the NHS and, and local councils, things like that. And, and even as a church, it, it seems to be getting harder and harder for the church to hold a biblical worldview in a culture that wants to equate identity with, well, whatever you'd like, really. Be it sexuality, political leaning, professional career. And those things reflect a desire to try and establish the, the true worth and uniqueness of every human being. And yet they miss the fact that our identity is not found in a characteristic about us, but in who Jesus has made us to be. And actually, that gives an even greater worth to our lives. The social commentator John Mark Comer puts it like this, that we live in a nation that wants the peace, love, and justice of the kingdom of God just without the king. And there can be a feeling for the church of, you know, with the state of our nation, is this really going how we'd want? Are things going Okay. You know, we know that God's in charge, and we know, we know that he'll kind of sort all things out, but what, why is our nation going the way that it is? I had a conversation like that with someone just on our Together Sunday recently, just a, a few weeks ago. And of course, these national challenges are not unaccompanied by our own day-to-day -day struggles either, are they? The relationship that ends or never looks like it's coming. 
You don't get the job. The results are not quite what you'd hoped for. The illness lingers. Family life is harder than you thought. And the question that we're all asking is, well, what do we do with those things? We're not immune from disappointments. And so how do we cope with discouragements? How do we respond? Well, in our passage today from Exodus, we're in chapter 33. Uh, we're going to meet uh, Moses, who, uh, if you're new to the story, is, is the main character of the story, along with God himself, uh, who himself is, uh, Moses is disappointed, uh, he's discouraged, he's dejected. And let me explain why. Because the story so far is that God has used Moses to bring the people of God, that's the Israelites, out of slavery under the Egyptians. And so they've come out en masse, and they are now encamped around this great big mountain. And at that mountain, God has spoken to Moses on their behalf to make great promises to them. He's made what we call a covenant with them. It's like, I suppose like marriage vows with them, that he will be their God, that they will be his people, that he will dwell in their midst. And in fact, he's even asked them to build him this great big tent, this dwelling place, a house of God, a house for God to dwell in called the tabernacle. And yet, as Moses has been up on the mountain receiving all of these instructions, he's come down from the mountain 40 days later, and to continue the marriage analogy, he's found them in bed with someone else. They've turned aside from worshiping God, and instead, they've given all their jewelry into making this golden calf that suddenly they're paying homage to. And the fallout of that is not that pleasant. And so what happens in the passage that's going on just before the passage that we're about to read out tonight is that God says, I'm going to take you into the promised land, the land that I have promised to you, but my presence won't go with you. I'll send an angel instead. It's not the best news. And so there are three characters in this story, all of which relate to God, and so that is a preacher's dream. There is Moses, there are the people, and there is Joshua. So Exodus 33, reading from verse 7, and I'm reading from the ESV. The words will come up on the screen. This is what it says. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tents, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud, which represents the presence of God, standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So let's begin by having a, a look at Moses. Now, uh, Moses has just had uh, this bad news, and whether that is chronologically uh, in the story or thematically, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the order uh, in the Bible is, is in there for a reason. 
And uh, as we were saying, Moses has just received this news from God that, uh, that, that he and the people to go into the promised lands, but the presence of God, the very thing that marked them out, will not go with them. In fact, God will uh, replace his presence with an angel. And when the people hear this, just before the passage that we read out, they label it a disastrous word. This is a disastrous word. And they go into an instant time of great national mourning. And you talk about half a country being shocked by the Brexit outcome, this is a hundred times worse. Although, in fairness, it took the Israelites 40 years to get out of the wilderness. Uh, so I suppose probably three years uh, today, in fact, is probably not so bad. But it's a truly toxic atmosphere. And so what does Moses do? What does he do with the fact that things are not going how he thought they would go? Things are not going how he'd hoped. That this disastrous word has just come to them. How does Moses respond? Well, the Bible tells us, verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. He pitched a place to meet with God. Now, if you're familiar with the story, just to explain it a little bit, there's a phrase in there that might be slightly confusing, this thing called the tent of meeting. And, and if you've been kind of reading up till recently, you'll know that this tabernacle, this great big tent that were to be the dwelling place of God, that was full of, full of splendor and symbolism and, and, and a, a kind of wonderful thing that the people would build, the tabernacle, also gets called the tent of meeting. But this is talking about something different. This is a smaller deal. This is a much simpler deal. There's no most holy place in this. There's no sacrifices, no Ark of the Covenant. But there is God. There is God. And Moses pitches a place to meet with God. You see, what he does is he pitches a route out of difficulty. So the camp is where it's all going wrong. The camp where all their tents are is the place where all of their worship of this golden calf had taken place. The camp is the place where the fallout from that was toxic. So what does Moses do? He goes outside the camp and pitches a place to meet with God. Because he knows the safety of the presence of God. He knows that it's the solution. And in fact, just after our passage, uh, Moses is, is heard saying to God, if your presence will not go with us, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? You see, he knew the presence of God gave him a perspective change. He knew the presence of God gave them the guidance that they needed. He knew the presence of God was, as we sing, when we see him all our fears are washed away. And it doesn't mean that we don't go back to them. And Moses, after these encounters with God, would have had to go back into the camp, into his own personal tent. But he went back with a changed perspective. He went back different. He went back there having met with the living God. I want to ask you, what tents are you pitching in your times of trouble? 
Are you drawing on the joy and the power of getting before God? Or for you, is it pitching the tent of scrolling through social media, of box set binging, of comfort eating, drinking, your bed, workaholism, busyness? Because when things are not quite going how we'd hoped, it is so easy to run away, isn't it? It is so easy to bury our head in the sand. And yet Moses ran to God, straight to God. It's why I'm so delighted that we've got about 30 or so people on our Keys to Freedom course who've identified something in their life that they know needs dealing with. And they have chosen deliberately not to run away from it, not to bury their head in the sand, but to do the hard work of engaging with God, of of trying to grasp what he says about them, of praying through the truths of scriptures and trying to deal with these difficulties that arise. You see, Moses doesn't just do it. He does it with confidence. This isn't just an action. It's an attitude. He does it with regularity. He does it with an expectation that he is going to encounter God and be changed. You say, well, how can he have that confidence? It's because he knows the favor and the promises of God. He says in verse 13, just after our passage, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, which in the original is on the assumption that I found favor in your sight, Show me your ways. Consider too that this nation is your people. You see, he knew the favor and the promise of God on his life. And folks, when we know the favor of God, when we know the promise of God on our lives, we approach him differently. When you know favor, when you know promise, you do things different. I've got a little girl. She's um, about two and a half years old. And um, I uh, made her breakfast uh, for her um, the other month. And uh, she was just, um, (laughs) all right, for the record, I do it most days. (laughs) The other month, I did my daily task of making breakfast for my little girl. And there she was in her chair. And uh, I gave her breakfast, which I do every day. (laughs) And I said to her, here's your daily breakfast, Lizzie. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, thank you so much for making my breakfast. That's so kind of you. She's two. My heart melted. I was like, I so want to commend that in her. I said, Lizzie, that's so kind of you to say. Thank you so much. Do you know what? I'm going to give you a chocolate button. (laughs) Don't judge me for chocolate buttons at breakfast time if you uh, have or know children. The following day, I made her breakfast again because I do it daily. I gave her her breakfast, and once again, she said, Daddy, that was so kind of you. Thank you for making my breakfast. Now can I have my chocolate button, please? (laughs) And you could tell in her eyes there was a speculation. I wonder if he'll fall for this one. I'm just going to throw it out there and see. And yet contrast that with if we're out and about, and some circumstance arises, and I say, oh, Lizzie, when we get home, you can have a chocolate button. When she gets home, she will march into our kitchen, march up to the cupboards, and she will say, Daddy, please, can I have my chocolate button? She will come with a faith and a confidence because she knows promise and she knows favor. 
Folks, it's the same with us. When we know the promise of God on our lives, when we know the favor that Jesus Christ has won for us, things are changed. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you can know that you were made on purpose for purpose, that God has a plan for your life. There is favor on you and favor on the church that you serve. Do you pray like that? I wonder, do you run to God like that? You know, we're sons and daughters of the Most High God, and yet how often do we live as orphans, live as those who have no parental help, live as those who say, well, if, if I'm going to do something, I'll have to do it all myself. I'm just going to rely on myself and make my own way. The Bible says that we are co-laborers with Christ, and yet sometimes we live as though we are unemployed in the kingdom of God. Do you know the kingdom of God has a 100% employment rate of its citizens? Because Moses here, he's, he's a forerunner. He forges a path for his people as he goes out of the camp and pitches the tent. He shows them the way to God. That's why they watch him. And in doing so, he is just like Jesus Christ himself, the one who with the cross on his back also went outside of the camp, outside of the city walls, on our behalf, and who as the ultimate tent of meeting, the dwelling place of God, pitched a wooden beam into the ground, and by dying in our place for our sin, he forged a way for us to come to God. If you know Jesus, he's won you access. That was James's words earlier about Buckingham Palace. No longer do you need to stand at the railings longing to go in. But you're an adopted son or daughter right now. You can come right in. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your sin, whatever your situation, God wants to fill you with his power. He wants to change your perspective. He wants to be moved by your prayers. He wants to build his kingdom through you. So why would we accept any less? And even if you don't know Jesus, if you're here tonight and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I just want to encourage you, why not reach out to him and just see what happens? Now, I know someone who comes to this church regularly who wouldn't call himself a Christian. He's not crossed the line of faith yet. And yet, Sunday by Sunday, he comes and he says, would you pray for me? Because every time we pray for him, there is a peace of God that comes upon him that just seems to transcend all of his circumstances. You know, my wife Emma and I have been getting to know a checkout assistant in Tesco, and one week we got the opportunity to pray for her. She had sciatica, pain in, in her lower back going all down her legs. We prayed. Do you know what? The pain just went. You can come to God just like Moses who ran to God. Secondly, let's have a look at the people. So we've looked at Moses uh, who ran to God. Uh, the people, they relearned engagement with God. This is what it says in, in verse 8. Uh, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. And then jumping ahead to verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. 
Now, what's going on here in the story is that there is a reaffirmation of Moses' leadership. From all the stuff that had gone before with the golden calf, where the people, as Moses was up the mountain, had basically said, well, as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And they'd rejected his leadership over them. But now, as they stand in respect, as he goes out to meet with God, as they affirm him as their leader, as their representative, his leadership is getting reestablished. But this is a new place for them, for the people of God. Literally, in that they've not been camped around this mountain before, but also metaphorically, following calf gate, if you can put it like that. There'd been a big change for them. And, and the question now was, how were they going to respond? You see, there are times in life, are there not, where huge change happens, either for bad reasons like in this story, or for perfectly good reasons that you can all imagine. And in those times where we have to relearn how to engage with God. Things just suddenly are totally different, and and the extent to which we learn to pray, learn to be in the Word of God, learn to enjoy the intimacy that He offers us, it's almost as though we have to relearn it. Maybe you get a new job, and your commute is suddenly totally different, and the routines that you had before just don't work for you. Maybe you're elsewhere for summer. Maybe you're planning on going back to where your parents' home is over summer. And the routines you've had here just won't work. Maybe it's that a relative gets ill and so the situation demands far more of your time. You know, for, for Emma and I, we've, uh, we've had a baby uh, about uh, two months ago, uh, little Zachary, and um, we're just kind of in the, those early stages. And do you know what? I feel like I'm having to relearn how to engage with God all over again. Because the routines that I had before he came just, just aren't working for me now. I'm having to look for opportunities to just enjoy that intimacy and that fellowship with him as well as in the day-to-day of looking after him. See, I, I came home the other day and um, Emma's Bible was uh, on the coffee table and I was so delighted. I said, oh, have you had some time to be in the Bible? She said, no, Lizzie just got it off the shelf. <laughs> kind of just sums our life up at the moment. Just having to spot those times, you think, oh, hang on, Lizzie and Emma are outside, Zachary's asleep. I could be with Jesus. I feel like I'm having to relearn those things all over again. I'm sure some of you can identify, because in those times, you can feel like it's all going wrong. And yet, the Christian life is a journey of constantly relearning how to engage with God. And it's okay to realize that. It's okay to realize that. Because for some of you tonight who are in new situations, new circumstances, where things feel so overwhelming for you that you feel like there's some kind of, what, 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 what's happening here? I don't understand. My previous routines just aren't working. I want to say to you tonight, you are not failing. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. There is wonderful opportunity ahead for you. He will give you everything that you need. He will meet with you in the day-to-day detail of your life. Where you are weak, he is strong. It's okay to keep wearing our L plates. Because do you know what? First and foremost, we are disciples. 
And that word literally means learners. We are learners. And in these times of change, it's why community is so important. You know, take home groups, for instance. They're so important because so often there are people in them who can encourage you through these times of relearning engagement with God. Maybe people who've been there before. Maybe people who can challenge you, people who can pray for you, people who can encourage you. It's why the uh, prayer groups that were announced yesterday at, at the women's morning or the men's prayer, 7 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, is absolutely huge. Because there are people in those contexts who have been in the very circumstances that you are going through and have gone before you, have forged a way, have fought those battles. People who've seen different stages of life and can help you through. And as you pray with them, you catch something of their heart of God. You catch something of their wisdom. You catch something of the work of God that has been years and years in the making. The story's told of um, a guy called Matt Redman, who is a Christian worship leader. So he uh, leads bands in contexts like this and big festivals and what have you. And... Um, very early on in his working life, uh, he was the worship pastor, so uh, led all the bands and the, the worship types um, uh, at a church in Watford. And uh, th this church came to the realization that everything they did worship-wise had just become way too performance-based, that it was a total performance mentality, and that it had solely become about bands sounding good and excellent, and, and the heart of worship had, had just been lost. And he was the worship pastor. I mean, imagine being in that meeting. Anyone got any other business they wish to raise? I think we've totally lost the heart of worship. Imagine that. It hurt. It was painful. And what they did was they ended up stripping away all their musicianship, all their bands, and just coming back to relearn how to worship once again. He had to relearn how to engage with God. And do you know what he did? He, he wrote a song out of that experience. And it's a bit dated now, but maybe some of you will recognize it. And the song says, when the music fades, as it literally did, and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. And the chorus says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I want to ask you, what is your story in your season of life of where you have relearned how to engage with God? Because for these Israelites, being a worshiping people was who they were meant to be. And so it is for us. God does not want a distant people. He wants intimacy and fellowship and engagement with you. Well, lastly, let's look at Joshua. And um, Joshua, well, he remained with God. And I want to look at the very last verse in the passage. And when you read the passage, this verse, verse 11, really stands out. And this is what it says. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. When Moses turned again into the camp... His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And the first half of that verse, maybe it actually abs. If we could put verse 11 up on the screen, that, might, that would really help. 
the, the first half of that verse is absolutely beautiful. It, it talks about the regularity of intimacy and friendship that God wants with us. But then the second half of that verse jumps onto Joshua. And you think, well, why? Why? That first half is so beautiful. We can dwell on that for forever and a day. That the Lord wants to speak with us face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That's how close he brings you in. But then it jumps to Joshua. Why? Some of the commentators totally miss this even. Well, what do we know about Joshua? He was Moses' assistant. He was a young man. He was the son of Nun, which, by the way, means he was the son of a man called Nun, not the son of a nun. That would be way more scandalous than is intended. <laughs> but he does well. He ends up leading the people into the land that God had promised. Moses never gets there. But Joshua leads the people into the promised lands. And the early readers would have known that. And so when they read this verse, they would see a connection between the fact that Joshua learned to linger with God and that Joshua fulfilled the promises of God. You know, we talk about running to God and we talk about engaging with God. But it's only one side of the coin. God has even more for us than that. Because in the Bible, when the Spirit comes upon a person, when they relearn how to pray, how to worship, how to engage with Him, it is so often for a missional purpose. That is, that we might spread His name all across the earth. So those are the two sides of the coin. Relationship with God and mission for God. You see, God does not want us to miss here that this is not just about the first half of verse 11, about the relationship and the intimacy, but it's about the second half of the verse two. It's about Joshua. It's about fulfilling the purposes of God. It's about us taking hold of God's promises for our generation in our day and seeing them fulfilled as we engage with him. There is an inextricable link between doing great things for God and learning to remain, to dwell, to linger with God. You know, in a room like this, there will be all sorts of dreams and desires as to how God could use us. There will be some in the room tonight who want to go church planting. There will be some in the room who want to see an increase of healings take place. There'll be ones who want to lead ministries in different areas There'll be ones who just want to be a, a wonderful and powerful witness to those around you, to your friends, your family, your uh, course mates, your work colleagues. There'll be some who desperately long for breakthrough in your life. Well, here's what this text would say to us. Let's learn how to be with God in the quiet place. Let's learn how to pray. Let's learn how to depend on God. Let's learn how to have an expectation that he will move. Let's learn to listen to the Spirit, not just in times of ministry, but in everyday life. Let's let him shape us and mold us and call us to more than we ever thought possible. So how do we make a difference in our nation? in our city, amid so many individual and societal challenges. 
Well, Moses ran to God. The people relearned how to engage with God. And Joshua remained with God. I just want to finish tonight with a a short testimony from a a chap called John G. Lake, who was a Christian of the late 19th, early 20th uh, centuries. And he saw an incredible number and magnitude of physical healings take place. And this is a little bit of his story. He says, I ministered for 10 years in the power of God. Hundreds of people were healed. And I could feel the conscious flow of the Holy Spirit through my soul and my hands. But at the end of that year, I believe I was the hungriest man for God that ever lived. There was such a hunger for God that as I left my offices in Chicago and walked down the streets, my soul would break out and I would cry, oh God. I had people stop and look at me in wonder. It was the yearning passion of my soul, asking for God in a greater measure than I knew. But my friends would say, Mr. Lake, you have a beautiful baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yes, it was nice as far as it went, but it was not answering the cry of my heart. My soul was demanding a greater entrance into God, into his love, his presence and power. So I went into a time of fasting and prayer and waiting on God. And then, one day, the glory of God came into my life in a new way. And when the phenomena had passed and the glory of it remained in my soul, I found that my life began to manifest in the varied range of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And God flowed through me with a new force. Healings were of a more powerful order. Oh, God lived in me. God manifested in me. God spoke through me. I had a new comprehension of God's will a new discernment of spirit, a new revelation of God in me. Why don't we have the band up? This passage, as we've looked at it in its context, really has been uh, the meat in the sandwich where the book is all talking really about a battle for the presence of God, about a hunger to be with God. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to create a space for any who want to respond to say, I'm just hungry for God. It might be that some of you know that you need to run to God out of your circumstances, just like Moses. It might be that some of you are in times of life where you feel like you really need to relearn how to engage with God, just like the people. Or it might be that for some of you, You just want to linger in the presence of God, just like Joshua did. And so we've still got plenty of time. Here's what we're going to do. The band are going to lead us in a song. And as that happens and as we worship, I'm going to ask everyone in this middle block here to just gather your belongings and to put them either at the back or the front of the room and to begin to unhook your chairs. And for anyone else who's able in the room, if you could just help with this, let's stand together, let's begin to do that. And then once we've sung this song, we're just gonna create a space and we'll see what God wants to do.